0: I'm observing again how nervousness helps to stay in contact with the body sensations. It's a very very good uh, object. (laughs) (laughs) So tonight I'd like to look at control as an obstacle to creativity. And what I mean by control is when we're attempting to fix a pattern or a form to keep it intact. Attempting to keep something from changing when we can perceive that things are always changing, and yet there's this attempt to keep things fixed. And this control operates on many levels. It, we can see control operating in the social structure, politically, through, through the power, power structures. And we can see it in, in so many ways, white domination over blacks, developed nations over undeveloped nations, the third world, Employ, employers over employees, and the rich over the poor. And this kind of control is motivated by profit this worship of profit. And we can see it in the social structure economically to try to maintain a status quo. And we can see this in the advertisements and movies, most, most often, where they play on people's desires to improve, to become more beautiful and better people, to have more fun in life. And again, it's this to to control people for profit. And we can see control in the family structures. Usually there's a dominant person, or sometimes there's two people, the, the two parents, who authorize or direct what's going to happen in the family. And we can see control between two people in relationships Again, there's usually power struggles or kinds of controls going on between the two, whether they're friends or lovers or husband, wife, or business partners. And often, this control can be seen in a male-dominant pattern. And we can also see control patterns in ourselves. So just you can see it in the changing levels in ourselves, we see it psychologically and spiritually. And we can see it right here in ways that we attempt to control the situation here. You can see it probably in your sittings <coughs> when there, the, the avoidance of certain sensations comes up, most, most of the time pain. You know, wanting to control it so the pain doesn't hurt so much or controlling certain mind states usually the peaceful happy comfortable mind states and avoiding the other ones so you know there's just this subtle control going on we're trying to control the sitting so they go a certain way and we don't have to feel certain feelings Controlling noises. There's a lot of sounds here, and trying to get the sounds not to be so so strong or so harsh. A sense of tightening up around it, or the food. You know, making sure that we get enough food. Maybe by quickly going out of the hall at 12:30. Maybe a little quicker than than others when we leave for after other sittings. And I know that um, I know that one because (laughs) when. I remember when I was uh, doing the three-month course at at, uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, I I often found myself being at the front of the line, at the front of the food line. And so I knew that I I needed to work with this to break this habit. So we had bell ringers who signed up for certain times of the day rather than for the whole day. So one bell ringer rang rang the bell each the same time all week long. So I thought, well, if I had to ring the bell at noon, that means I'd have to go all around the the center, and I couldn't be at the front of the line. I'd have to be at the back of the line. So I did this, and it was really a practice for me to trust that there was going to be enough food by the time I got to the food line, because I was literally at the end of the line and it was very good practice for me so wh- i worked with that kind of control and and the thread the thread that weaves all these levels together the social structures the family structures the relationships the how we control ourselves the piece that's consistent is that fear is operating on all these levels there's fear Fear of losing control, (coughs) or maybe more precisely, fear of the feelings that arise when we think we're out of control. Not wanting to feel those feelings. And I say think we're out of control, since what criteria can we use to evaluate whether we're out of control or not, unless we're still caught in the same structure that we think is controlling us. Because how can I know I'm out of control unless I'm comparing it to my idea of what it means to be in control? So there's still the sense of being controlled there. So to a degree, we set up these forms and these structures in order to maintain a certain range of feelings. And they're pretty much between being happy and comfortable. This is very narrow range. You know, Being happy and comfortable. And we set up all this kind of uh, control so that these are the feelings that arise most of the time. And I'm not saying that form is created just as an avoidance, because form does exist in our lives. We can't get away from forms and patterns. I mean, my body is a form. My blanket is a form. The schedule is a form, the technique we're using here is a form, my role as teacher is a form. So there's no inherent problem in the form. Uh, What I'm pointing to is our relationship to the forms. The question being, how attached am I to keeping this form intact, keeping this form held together? How tightly am I holding on? And this is where the control comes in. There's a saying that angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. <laughs> and I like that. <laughs> so t- sometimes we use the roles we take up to control, to control the outer and the inner events of our lives. And we can see this in the images that we take up know that we the way we want to project ourselves to ourselves to the world and we could see it in many different ways the hippies the ones who dress in a particular way to project an image or punks which is more current than the hippies or wealthy projecting a wealthy image or or maybe something more of us can relate to is the spiritual image you know, that we're we're really spiritual and we have all the garb and we're doing the right kinds of things. And and in a way it can become there can be some attachment to that image. Some for some it's the professional role that they take on. And really just the roles we play in society. And there's one role that I I have a lot of experience with and I want to spend a little time talking about and that's the role of being a woman. And in a sense, well, in a great sense, there's a form or pattern of male dominance over women. (coughs) And this is a theme, it's not in all cases, but there is certainly a strong theme in our culture of this. And one way that this is usually obvious to me is if I'm watching a television program, it's a a news show or a documentary, And if there's something they're showing something in the uh, government, something that's happening politically, the predominance of men that are in the government governmental positions, or the same thing, the the predominance of men in big business, or or as heads of religious traditions and spiritual teachers, there's just I'm 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 continually noticing how often there are. are men in those positions of influence. I was watching, just before I came, I was watching a documentary on women uh, women in Catholicism, the roles that women were taking on, and it was very difficult for me to watch because in, in the Catholic religion they have the great processions and altars and a lot of um, ritual. And even though the documentary was on women in Catholicism, I kept seeing that in the parades in the, on the altar were all these men. And it was quite, uh, quite startling to see it. So it's again just this continual recognition of some imbalance in the roles. It was just an obvious lack of the presence of women. We can see it in the streets of Bogaya as well. There's the women are tending the stalls or shopping and it's the men who are kind of hanging out you know (laughs) and for the most part women learn to stay at home and be with the families or stay in the background and be somewhat quiet and and submissive and and not make too much noise and this is certainly true in my family i mean i come from a very traditional family where my mother takes care of my father and is pretty much living his life. She participates in the activities of his choice. And this is the role that I learn. This is the role that I've learned to take up and been told to keep playing it out if I want to be happy. This is the message that gets delivered. And these patterns of keeping women in the background are stronger in some traditions than others, of course. In the traditional Hindu-Muslim system, women are expected to remain exclusively in submissive uh, mother and wife roles. And also on the Jewish family systems and Southern Baptist in the States, and, and especially in, in the Southern states of, of America, it's very, very strong. But now the women's movement is recognizing this pattern, this form, and is attempting to make some changes, attempting to make some shifts in this. And the West is having a a very big influence on women all over the planet, because we are are starting to recognize that we are co-dependent in keeping this form intact. This word, codependent, is a word that has just been starting to be used in the um, therapeutic circles. And it's used to describe a phenomenon that was recognized by therapists working with alcoholics. And they realized that a person in a family would be less likely to continue drinking, continue being an alcoholic if other members of the family were not supporting the behavior. And those people are codependent. They're codependents in continuing this pattern. For example, a wife complains and nags and threatens the husband for drinking. And then the husband says, she drives me to drink. And the wife keeps getting angry and he keeps drinking. And because he doesn't want to have to deal with the anger. So there's this kind of, they're both participating in keeping <coughs> this, this pattern going. Or for example, the husband gets very involved with his work and he's, he's not around very often. And the wife then drinks to avoid the feelings of isolation and separation and, and being neglected. So both are participating somehow in the pattern or the son feels a lot of hatred and embarrassment about having an alcoholic father and then avoids the father and the father drinks because he doesn't want to feel the feelings of resentment that's coming from the son. So, so what they're doing now is seeing that each person in the family unit needs to be treated and look, and each pattern needs to be looked at to see how the whole thing is being held together. And and this is really a very big breakthrough in family therapy because they're seeing how all our all our behavior has an impact. We don't live in an isolated way where what we do doesn't make a difference. And this is really, I mean, this is very close to the Buddhist idea of interconnectedness and dependent origination, and how each each act makes a difference. Each act counts. We're not isolated beings. Even when we think we're acting in a way that is compassionate or that we're pleasing or taking care of someone, as a nurse brought up in one of my groups, she said, I think I'm acting in a compassionate way, but I'm starting to think that maybe I'm helping that person keep his destructive, his or her destructive patterns alive. And I can't tell, I can't get a sense of what's compassionate. So we really have to take a look at our actions and how are we serving each other? Are we keeping these roles, these forms, these destructive patterns alive or are we doing something to make a difference, to make a change? So women, I think, are starting to see this codependent relationship that perhaps we're all keeping ourselves in these submissive roles when we don't speak up, when we don't do something to make a difference, and that maybe we're not victims but that we're participating when we don't do something, when we don't speak up. And when we don't, when we don't speak up, these are the very patterns which stops the expression of one's being, which stops creativity, which interferes with the flow. Um, Last year uh, I went to a women's conference on women practicing Buddhism and it was quite a phenomenon. It was in Berkeley, California and about 15 women got together because they knew they needed to implement a new form. They were saying a new form for women, a new way that women could express themselves. And usually conferences have Five or six authorities you know that they invite to speak to the group. These are the people who know. And we thought, well, there, these women thought, very, I was very close with some of these women, they thought, let's do something different. Let's not invite authorities. Let's all be authorities together and share our wisdom in groups. And it was quite phenomenal, since usually there's the hierarchy, there's a centralized authority, and it sets up the one who knows and those who don't know. And we just did away with that. And there, there was 150 women who came from different Buddhist traditions, which is a, which is significant in itself. There were Tibetans and Zen Buddhists and Theravon Buddhists. And there were also women who were unaffiliated and we all got together and it was, for me, it was the first time I had talked to some women in other Buddhist traditions. I, I, I pretty much stayed with my own group. So here was a, a, a meeting that was happening. We were expanding our boundaries, we were extending ourselves. And we were together in a large group two times a day and then we broke into small groups. And a, a few women were asked to read poems or tell stories. Uh, sing, lead us in meditations or or whatever in the large group. And then in the small group, we explored different issues that were relevant to women and women practicing Buddhism. And we had all kinds of interesting topics like money, aging, parenting, relationships, women as teachers, women and power, creativity, (coughs) exploring feminism and livelihood right livelihood and we sat together and we discussed there was not somebody who led the group we all shared together and even though in these groups there were women who had years of skills and experience leading groups and teaching but we all got to look at our tendency either to let someone else control us or or control, because either one or the other was operating. So how, how can we make space and let every voice be heard? And it was very interesting practice for us. So we each put our roles down. It was very successful. We, we put our roles down and recognized that everything that was said was of value. I think that's that's very different approach, that everything that somebody offered was valuable. There wasn't a right or wrong. It was just different views. It was just different perceptions of people's reality. And that was recognized, that was appreciated. (laughs) And there was no usual dominant figure telling us how, how it should be, how our reality should be, how it is for us. And we just recognized that that form does not work for us as women, that we need to create new forms that work for us rather than against us, forms that are not controlling but allowing spontaneous expression of our being so that all our voices could be heard. We all felt quite quite elated, quite happy after these two days and felt uh, committed to continuing this kind of of uh, form or this way of being uh in in our in our lives in our in our way of it relating with each other so what i'm pointing to is looking at our relationship of the roles we play how much are we attached to our roles how much are we stuck to the role are they keeping unhealthy and destructive patterns intact? We really need to take a look at this. There's a story from um, the book, How Can I Help?, which was put together by Ram Das, one of the teachers who, quite popular teacher. It's a story, uh, the book is about people who are working in the helping professions and things that they come up against in working in very difficult and painful situations and this story is about an intern and an intern is a physician a doctor who primarily does diagnosis with patients and he says as an intern part of my work was to travel around in teams examining patients i would notice their look as we entered intimidated apprehensive feeling like case studies of various illnesses. I hated that, but I was an intern. I remember one guy distinctly, however, who was altogether different. I think this guy changed my life. He was a black man in his 60s, very cute, very mischievous, and very sick. What brought us repeatedly to him was the utter complexity of his illness. Condition on top of condition, and the mystery of why he was still alive. It was so strange. We were visiting not to find out what was wrong with him, but why he was still here at all. I had the feeling he could see right through us. He'd say, hey boys, when we'd come in. The way you might when a gang of ten-year-olds come barging into the house for a snack in the middle of an intense game outside. He was so pleased and so amused. It made some people nervous. I was intrigued, but for some weeks I never had a chance to be alone with him. Now and then he'd get into very serious trouble and he'd be moved into the intensive care unit. Then he'd recover, to everyone's amazement, and we'd move him back. And we'd visit him again, and he'd say, you boys here again? (laughs) (laughs) Pretending to be surprised that we were still around. (laughs) One night, there was an emergency. And I took the initiative and went to see him alone. He looked pretty bad. But he came alert a few seconds after I entered. He gave me a grin and said, well, sort of like he'd expected me like he'd known how much I'd come to love him. That happens in hospitals. I imagine I looked a little surprised at the well, but we just laughed a minute and I stood there just so taken by who he was. And then he hit me with a single remark, half a question and half a something else. Who you, he said, sort of smiling, just that, who you? I started to say, well, I'm doctor. And then I just stopped cold. It's hard to describe. I just sort of went out blank. What happened was that all kinds of answers to his questions started to go through my head. They all seemed true, but they all seemed less than true. Yeah, I'm this, and I'm that, and also, but not just. And that's not the whole picture. The whole picture is. The thought process went something like that. Nothing remotely like that had ever happened to me, but I remember feeling elated. It must have shown because he gave me this big grin and said, nice to meet you. (laughs) His His timing killed me. We talked for five minutes about this and that, nothing in particular, children, I think. And at the end, I ventured to say, is there anything I can do for you? And he said no i'm just fine thanks very much doctor doctor and he paused for the name and i gave it to him this time and he grinned at me really he did and that was it he died a few days later and i carry him around today i think of him now and again in the midst of my rounds a particular moment or a particular patient brings him back who you For years I trained to be a physician, and I almost got lost in it. This man took away my degree and then gave it back to me with, and also this, and also this, and also this, scribbled across it. I'll never forget that. (laughs) So sometimes something reminds us that we are much more than we think we are. We're not confined to a narrow definition of ourselves. We take a few steps back and recognize that who we are is this, and also this, and also this. That each each role we take on has a reality only for a moment, only for the moment that we are vested in it. And the next moment, it may not be relevant at all. Can we let go to that extent and not take these roles up, not take things up and carry them around with us? This internist was elated. He felt elated when this, situ- when this happened to him. He saw through his role, his form. He saw that he could put it down. They didn't have to be controlled by it. It didn't have to confine him. And this is when creativity flows. There's freedom in putting down the form when we're finished with it. Just as the Buddha says, you can use the boat to cross the river, but when you get to the other side, you don't carry the boat with you as you're walking. You leave the boat by the side of the river. When something's finished, it's finished. And this gives us the freedom to be, the freedom to allow expression of of our beings to flow. This is creativity. What else can creativity be but the freedom to express oneself? Recognizing that there's no need to hold on to these forms, we can let them go, let go of controlling and allowing and trusting the unfolding, settling back and watching the show. And yet, what we find when we do that is the fear arises. The fear arises in this letting go, which becomes the obstruction to this creativity. <coughs> and the fear, this utter state of not knowing what will be if we let go. And for me, if I have to do something that's particularly challenging, what arises with the fear is the thought, can't do. I can't do it because I'm too afraid. And the fear becomes the reason that I can't do it because it seems that the fear itself is going to keep me from actually accomplishing what I want to do, so there's no point in even doing it. So it's kind of a, gets to be sort of a a circular pattern. (coughs) And yet it's the identification with that thought, it's believing that thought to be true, which brings about the tightening the resistance as we call it and then the shutting down and the paralysis and depression and then the isolation because i think that i need to cut myself off from others because who wants to be around somebody who's so depressed (laughs) and who really wants to hear about you know all this pattern they know about it and they don't want to continue hearing about it blah, blah 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 And for many, this is the point that leads to leads to numbing the feelings, numbing the feelings of depression, isolation, fear, with alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, food, and countless other destructive habits. It's right there that it starts coming in. Giving this talk tonight is a, tr- was a tremendous is a tremendous challenge for me, and I experience the resistance. I experience the paralysis that comes with it, and yet I realize that I can't allow myself to be controlled by these sensations. Especially since I know so well that by not doing something. To change this pattern means that the sensations only get more unpleasant <laughs> and the pattern gets solidified. It does, It is does not really helping to not keep moving. So I learned that only through allowing myself to become familiar with these sensations of fear, with these controlling sensations, and by feeling them, And by really looking very, very carefully to see what's happening, can I really be free of the paralysis, free of the depression? The fear is a thought about the future. It's a thought that something's going to happen in the future. And when I say, I'm going to do it anyhow, I'm really saying, I'm willing to lose control. I'm willing to feel and stay awake to the living present even when it's unpleasant. I'm willing to die into the moment. I am willing to die. And that's the I that identifies with the roles, with the images, with the shoulds, and says, I'm just going to be. I'm going to do this thing I'm so afraid of anyhow. I'm not going to be stopped by some unpleasant sensations. And then the creativity is not obstructed, even in the presence of fear. Not necessarily that the fear goes away, it means that the fear isn't stopping. And then the creativity flows. The creativity flows out of this persistence and allows the possibility for fresh responses And this breaks the pattern of retreating, breaks the pattern of not doing, not doing because I'm too afraid. And then I can feel the mobility, the fluidity, the freedom to move, to be, to act. And fear is no longer the obstruction to my creativity. Fear is no longer the enemy. So while you're here, I think it's very useful to look at In what ways have you been controlling? What ways are you controlling of yourself and others? What ways are you controlling of yourself so you don't have to feel certain things? Like maybe not wanting to do the walking meditation because it's boring, or because you get so distracted and don't want to have to bother with it, so you just don't do it. Or maybe not doing the sittings because you don't really want to have to look at the pain or the discomfort. Or maybe not wanting to be near certain people because their behavior is so offensive and you don't want to have to deal with it. Or, or maybe thinking that there's no problem at all, that you're happy, so I may as well just be here in joy. Is there really something else going on? So just to take another look. Can I stay with it even though it's unpleasant? Can I just stay with it a bit longer to test the waters, to see what happens? Because unless we see it here, unless we're seeing and discovering and expanding, it has to start right here in order to make a difference on the planet. We have to really look right now, right here, and take the risk. It's a very safe and supportive environment do the work at hand. And I might ask, do we have a choice? So, maybe we'll take a few minutes of silence.